Welcome once again, everybody, to the Tennis Worthy Podcast, brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, and in the first half of 2023, the Hall of Fame published 12 long-form audio interviews with some of the greatest names in tennis. Coming up in early 2024 will be season two with more fascinating interviews. So in the meantime, we thought we would take some of the most interesting contributions from our first 12 interviews and put them together in five themes. Today's theme is learning, improving, and psychology. And among the players explaining how they learned, how they worked on ironing out their weaknesses without undermining their strengths, and how to deal with the mental side of the game, we have Yvonne Lendl, Gigi Fernandez, Pam Shriver, and John Newcomb. Chris Bowers, who hosted all 12 interviews for the Tennis Worthy podcast, presents this review of the great names talking about learning, improving, and psychology. It's all yours, Chris. I suspect we all know what we mean by learning. We learn things at school. We're taught things by friends, by colleagues, by our own experiences. We're always learning. But how do players who are on their way to the top learn? One of the questions I've asked most of the guests on the Tennis Worthy podcast is... Why were they able to beat junior contemporaries who probably had strokes that were just as good as they had? The answer given by John Newcomb, a multiple Grand Slam champion in singles, doubles and mixed, gives an insight into the quiet way he stole an advantage over his competitors. There was probably about eight of us and, and from the time I started playing in tournaments at uh, 10, 11 years of age that were all about the same level. And they all you know, were getting coached and they all had good games. But I always managed to win. I won every age championship that we came through. I, I, I can't say what they were doing. I know what I was doing, that um, from 10 years of age, when I, I started getting private lessons, uh, I, I would get only a half-hour private lesson a week. That was it, not every day. But I'd come home from school, and the first thing I'd do, I'd, I'd have a cup of tea with my mother, and then um, I'd go into the backyard and... I'd uh, practice my service toss for about 10 minutes so that I could land it in the same spot 10 out of 10 times. And then I'd practice serving uh, against the brick wall in the back of our house. I had targets I'd drawn up at net height right along the brick wall and I'd measure off the distance from the, the brick wall uh, on the grass and uh, where the back line would be. And I'd practice serving at these targets. And then I'd... Uh, and do that for about 10 minutes, and then I'd go up and uh, practice volleying against the brick wall. It's very hard to beat a brick wall when you're volleying. Do that for 10 minutes. So in, in about half an hour, I'd had a, a really heavy session of my own practice, but practicing specific things. And then I'd, I'd get on my bike and go up the local oval and uh, do whatever with my mates up there. But the first things first... Uh, I got that uh, practice in that I wanted to do because I had a dream and I, you know, I wanted to fulfil it, but I wanted to do the other things as well. So even at the age of 10, you found the discipline within yourself to put that practice in before going off with your mates? Yes, and um, the uh, Slashinger Sporting Goods Company had uh, started to sponsor me with, with rackets, uh, free rackets and they arranged a, a gym for me to go to, which I'd, I'd do one or two days a week after school. I'd go to this gym, and the person that was there had trained a, a number of players like, like Hoden Rosewell before me. And so we'd do um, 
not a lot of heavy weights, you know, a lot of stomach work and jumping exercises and things like that for a, an hour session and, uh, and Schlesinger's paid for that. So uh, at an early age, I was into it and I didn't mind because, uh, you know, I bought into it myself. Aha, bought into it myself. That's one of the recurring themes from Champions. They commit to the regime rather than just having the dream. It's also interesting to note that Newcomb had just half an hour's lesson a week. A lot of the top players admit to having not had that much coaching as a junior. So it's clearly not about the amount of coaching you get, but what you do with that coaching in your own practice time. So how do you absorb what a coach teaches you? Listen to this interesting take on assimilating the message from the Australian, French and US Open champion, Ivan Lendl. To me, I don't go anywhere saying, oh, I'm going to see what I learn. I just go and see what I see, and eventually it will help me somewhere down the road. I could equate it to a golf lesson. I take golf lesson every every week once. And sometimes I'm driving home and saying, what the heck was that today? And 18 months later, I am doing something, and something happens. Oh, that's what he meant that time. And it's like that uh, learning, learning in tennis. You, okay, you do things, and you don't know why somebody did something. And then you're in similar situation and you realize why they did it and why did they go there and not there or hit shots there or somewhere else. And uh, it's more subconscious learning by paying attention. Yeah, I was going to say, um, the way you talk about it is is very valid for the second half of your life when you've processed a lot. But as a... No, it's, it's, it's valid from the beginning. Right, okay. You just don't know it. Ah, okay. So you weren't conscious of that, but you knew what you were picking up by looking back on it now. Yeah, I was learning subconsciously. I can analyze it later. Ivan Lendl on subconscious learning by paying attention. So you have to pay attention, but not overthink what you're learning, at least not at the time. It clearly worked for him. A big part of learning is the ability to subject a keen young player to age-appropriate stimulus, so they get the right methods at the right ages. Listen to the two-time US Open champion Tracy Austin on how she just happened to get exactly the input she needed for her desire to learn. The club that I grew up at, Vic Braden was the, the pro there, and he made tennis fun. He came at the perfect time when I was starting tennis. I loved it. He started us with balloons. We were playing, re- having relay races. We were playing games all the time. Gosh, this is fun. I'm always laughing. I want to play more tennis. Seven years old, Vic decided to move down south in Southern California and start his own tennis center. So a taskmaster came to the club named Robert Landstorp, probably just around the right time. When he came in, I was developing my strokes, and he was very particular about stroke production and went over and over and over until you got it right or until he thought it was the right particular stroke. Uh, he wanted it perfect because he thought if it was a really clean technique, then it would be repeatable under pressure. And I liked that kind of discipline. That really worked well with my kind of personality. I was challenged by that to do something over and over and try to get better, try to hit it closer to the lines. Try, he had targets that he set out. I wanted to beat everybody else with how many out of 10, how many out of 20. So that kind of personality for a coach was right in my wheelhouse. For other kids, they didn't really love it. But that's where I started to develop the discipline where you practice hard and the next day you get up and do it again. You play tournaments on the weekends, you win it, maybe have a loss. And then I actually enjoyed trying to figure out 
problem solve of, okay, why did I lose? What can I improve? Next week, I'm going to work on X, Y, Z because I want to beat that person next time. And they, they picked out a weakness. So I found all of that very challenging, intriguing. I enjoyed the challenge of trying to improve. I think a lot of kids, I would look around and they would get you know, down about a loss or they felt that it was too much. It was overwhelming. And I think because I had such a, a great passion for the dynamics, the tactics of tennis, I really wanted to dig into it, it deeper. And my mom loved that. And I think she was the really the one. Robert gets so much credit for my career, but my mom really was more of the tactician because after we would, after I played match, we kind of break it down. And she was the one that saw the court more, you know, hit it here and hit it here and then hit it short over here. Or, how to play, how to how to react to certain dynamics in a match. So she was uh, a real strategist. And that, again, that intrigued me. There's so many things that have to go into it. I'm just digging into looking back at a, a kid that just wanted to, to do more, to push myself more. At the end of the day, we practiced three hours a day. And I was still there because my mom was working. So I would go down on the, on the backboard. And how old more. were you hitting three hours a day? Mm, you know, 10, 11. But they would be gone because they didn't have to stay at the club. But I had no choice because my mom had to work till six. If they're gone, I'd go down to the to the backboard and make up imaginary matches against people. I'd get a bucket of balls and go hit some serves. I'd grab somebody and say, hey, let's just hit for a little bit. I could have been there going to the, to the playground. I could have gone to the swing set. And my mom was working, so she wasn't saying, go do this, go do that. I had this extra time and I was always thinking, how can I maximize? Where can I get better? Like I call it the perfect storm to have Vic, to have Robert, to have the Kramer Club with lots of people to practice with, the weather that we had, but also this burning desire, this burning drive to get better. Tracy Austin, and it tells you how important balloons are as a child's first tennis ball. Who knows how different Tracy's career would have been without the pure fun she had playing tennis before the age of seven. She talked there about how Robert Lansdorp really grooved her strokes. And it's important to get the basic technique right early so you can work out what your strengths are. But what happens if you get into a situation where, in attempting to eradicate your weaknesses, you threaten to undermine your strengths? That was a problem faced by the doubles Hall of Famer, Pam Shriver. I certainly think, even though it was before the era where you worked on your mindset and the, the whole mental side, I could have been a lot better mentally. I also should have worked, even though my feet weren't as naturally quick, nowhere near as my hands, I should have worked on my footwork a lot more. And we all know there's drills, there's things you can do. This is that nature-nurture thing. Okay, naturally, I didn't have the fastest feet. My build and everything goes into that. But when you look at, and you think about someone like Sharapova, how she improved her footwork and her agility on the court, and she's maybe an inch taller than me. I mean, you really have to work hard sometimes when you're a certain height, certain build. And I didn't put in enough time working on the feet. And the, I guess the other thing would have been I should have been more open to some tweaks in my game. I kind of feel like I got really stubborn. Like I had to serve – I felt like I had to serve in volley on all my first serves. I, I kind of played this one way. And, you know, once the power started to come in the game more and more, you know, I had these flat – shots, slice, flat shots, and it was just hard to control. So I kind of wish that I had been more open to developing change, new shots, instead of just kind of relying on the same game for 18 years. 
And if you had, is it possible we'd have been sitting here chatting about why your attempt to play with high, greater shape and top spin actually meant that your career went downhill? Well, that was the fear, actually, because, you know, and I'm cognizant of that right now as I try and, you know, help a player on the tour right now to get to get better is you, you have your strengths. And the, the thing that's really hard is to improve your weaknesses without the, it affecting your strengths. And I think I always felt if I changed some things and I came about the game a different way, that it would take my core strengths away. So that's why one of the reasons I backed away from it. Plus, my I, my primary coach at the time did not support changing much, thought it was really the right way to, for me to play. You said you'd have worked more on the mental side. What do you think you'd have done? Well, I'm a big believer now in things like visualization, you know, the breathing techniques, just ways to keep stress away um, or ways to deal with stress on the court. And I feel like there were some times in my career where instead of shaking the stress off and just kind of having the tools to deal with it, I just kind of like got more and more frustrated. Like I'll give you a sim simple example. Knowing what you can control and what you can't control and accepting it and recognizing it, that's a huge thing. Like, okay, it's windy out. Is there anything I can do about the wind? Not a thing. The only thing I can do is be prepared to play in the wind, accept that it's windy and it's difficult, and then go from there. Whereas I would kind of fight the fact that it was windy and I'd be upset that it was windy. Well, there's nothing I could do about it. So anyway, with maturity, I became much more understanding of these things, but by that time it was too late to help my tennis career. Pam Shriver getting into the realms of the mental side of tennis. And it's now 50 years since Timothy Galway published his pioneering book, The Inner Game of Tennis, which brought tennis psychology into mainstream discussion, although others, including John Newcomb, had published works on tennis psychology before that. In the 1980s, the American performance psychologist Jim Lur began helping tennis players, mainly through his association with the coach Nick Boletari. One of the people he helped was the multiple Grand Slam doubles champion Gigi Fernandez. Well, the thing that he did with me, which was brilliant in his part, he asked me if I could act. And I said, well, I don't know if I can act, but I have a great uncle who's an Academy Award winner, Jose Ferrer. So maybe I had the acting gene and I didn't know it. And, he's, and I said, well, what do you want me to do? He says, I want you to act like you're having fun. I want you to pretend and I want you to fool all the crowd watching. And I want them to look at that girl playing and think that that girl's having fun. I said, okay, I'll try it. So I tried it the first match and we won 6-4 in the third. And when he came off the court, he said, did you have any fun? I'm like, oh, no. 6-4 in the third is stressful. I didn't have any fun. I said, okay, do it the next match. And I did it the next match, and the next match, and the next match. And now we're playing Martina and Pam, best team in the history of tennis, male or female, 21 Grand Slams. Um, they had just finished their 108-match win streak at Wimbledon, and that's three years without losing. And we were playing them in the semis, so really have you no and Robin White. Yep. And we have no chance to win this match. And we're just, I'm still pretending like I'm having fun. And the song, the number one hit at the time was Don't Worry, Be Happy. And we just kept singing that song. And we beat them. We beat Martina and Pam, and we won the U.S. Open. So all, And did you have fun? Oh, yeah. I, when I walked off court after the semifinals, played on grandstand, old grandstand, packed. And I walked off the court, and he goes, are you having fun now? I'm like, you bet I'm having fun. I'm in the finals of the U.S. Open. So that's when I thought, okay, if I can trick my brain into thinking that I'm having fun and play this kind of tennis, I have to figure this out because I – 
obviously have potential. You know, once you win a Grand Slam, you, you know you can win others. It's just a matter of getting there. Gigi Fernandez on the importance of tricking your brain into thinking you can do something. And given how similar the world's top 100, even 200 players are in terms of playing ability, the mental side plays a remarkably powerful role. If you can get on top of the mental side of tennis, it doesn't mean you'll win every match, but it does mean fewer matches that you should win will get away. You've been listening to just a few of the fascinating moments from the first season of the Tennis Worthy podcast brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. There will be more excerpts presented by Chris Bowers next time as we build up to season two of these long-form interviews with our tennis legends. Next time, the theme will be the importance of family. Listen to what the likes of Vijay Amritraj, Tracy Austin, John Newcomb, and Mary Pierce have to say on the subject of family support in a champion's tennis career. And remember, of course, you can hear the full interviews by going to tennisfame.com slash podcast. If there are any from season one you haven't heard, do have a listen. It is well worth your time. Until then, I'm Brett Haber, and thanks so much for listening to the Tennis Worthy Podcast. Podcast.